Okay, well, I'm delighted to be here today with these three eminent gentlemen, um, all three accomplished gentlemen, and we are going to have a wonderful conversation today. <clears throat> I'm just going to do a, a brief introduction, and then <clears throat> I'd kind of like to clarify some terms because I know that both Dr. Rebeke and Dr. Wolfgang Smith have uh, terminology that they use that is specific to their work. So um, joining me today is Dr. Richard Smith, who is president of the Philosophia Foundation, which is um, working to proliferate the ideas of Dr. Wolfgang Smith. Dr. Richard Smith received his, uh, math at, his uh, degree in math at Berkeley and a PhD in system science and decision-making under uncertainty. And Dr. John Bravaki has a master's and a PhD in philosophy and uh, a bachelor's specializing in cognitive science, and all of these are from the University of Toronto. <clears throat> He's also the maker of the wonderful 50-episode series, Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, and a recipient of numerous academic awards. Dr. Wolfgang Smith graduated at the age of 18 from Cornell University with a BA in philosophy, physics, and mathematics. And he also received an MS in physics from Purdue and a PhD in mathematics from Columbia. He was then a mathematics professor at MIT, UCLA, and Oregon State University and did research in the field of differential geometry and has written numerous books including Cosmos and Transcendence, Vertical Causation, and his newest book, Physics, A Science in Quest of an Ontology, which hopefully will answer John's question, which he raised when we had the conversation with Michael Levin, when John said that he's searching for uh, an ontology of causation. So <clears throat> um, hopefully we'll be able to get into that. Um, my guests both have a common interest in James J. Gibson and his groundbreaking work on what it means to see. And I wanna get into that in more depth, but I wondered if first I could have each of you just do a little bit of um, definition of terms. So if we could start with Wolfgang Smith, could you describe for us what you mean when you talk about the physical and the corporeal? and how that relates to the three realms that you talk about, the eternal, the intermediary, and the uh, corporeal. So what is the difference between physical and corporeal in your ontology? Well, the difference is really quite simple. And actually, I would say that uh, James Gibson is really the man who enables us to understand this difference in depth. Because the word physical uh, has received its contemporary uh, connotation from the physics world, the physicists. That's what they deal with. The physicist deals with the physical. And uh, as we all know, they conceive of this in terms of some kind of a mechanism. Uh, in other words, the physical is a domain owning only quantities. There are no qualities, nothing other than sheer quantities in the physical. And uh, 
the word corporeal, as I have used it in my writings, uh, is, as it were, the the counterpart to the physical. It is the world as we perceive it uh, through our five senses. And uh, this is based upon the uh, ontological assumption, if you will, that uh, what we perceive is not a res cogitans, it's not something in our brain, but it is actually the real exterior world. And so, uh, quite a long time ago, I uh, convinced myself that in addition to the physical realm, which is all the physicist sees and not for the most part believes in, in addition to this is the corporeal, which is something greater than the physical. The physical is, so to speak, a part of it. And let me just mention that on this basis, I wrote a book in 1995 called The Quantum Enigma, which claims at least to solve a very famous problem which has occupied the world of physics for about a century, namely the so-called measurement problem of quantum mechanics. So for about ever since quantum mechanics uh, was conceived, the physicists have been puzzled by the fact that in the act of measuring a quantum object, uh, a quantum variable, the mathematical structure, say as a wave function, collapses in an instant and yields a number which is not there to begin with. It's not there before you do the measurement. And this is obviously very mystifying. And physicists, as I say, have been uh, trying for close to a century to resolve that puzzle. And it it seems to me, after more than a hundred years of failure, that they really can't do it on the basis of physics. And the reason they can't do it on the basis of physics is because this corporeal realm, as distinguished from the physical, enters the picture perforce. So this is the key to the resolution of the uh, measurement problem. And uh, getting back to James Gibson, we see that, in a sense, he is the scientist who has given us that key. Okay. The the corporeal enters into the measurement problem through the measuring device, right? Yes, I should add very quickly that uh, if you pursue this line of thought, you arrive inevitably at the conclusion that every corporeal object X, say, determines a corresponding physical object Sx, which you might think of as a kind of part uh, of X. It, It is what remains of X when you look at it through the lenses of the physicist. That's great. That gives us a good start. And so, um, John, the the terms that I thought might be helpful to define here for Wolfgang and also for and Richard and for our other viewers is that you've made 
fairly famous, this term relevance realization. And, yes. uh, and you've also talked a lot about the problem of intelligibility. Yes. And, and then your four P's of knowing. <clears throat> so I thought if you could describe for us what you mean by relevance realization and your four P's of knowing. And, um, and then after you do that, then I'll, I've got some questions for you too about James Gibson. Sure, I'll do that. Although I think uh, also the stuff I talk about with emergence and emanation is very relevant to coin. Well, add, add that in there then. Okay. <clears throat> so uh, relevance realization, this is uh, yeah, uh, the, in many different domains in which we attempt to in, in study cognition and intelligence, uh, we bump up against this problem um, that uh, we can't check all of the information available, either in memory or in the environment. Uh, we have to select for that, uh, and we can't select it by some algorithmic search where we check all the information and evaluate it, because that would be combinatorial explosive. So what we do is we actually ignore uh, large amounts of information, and we don't do this in a merely arbitrary, we do it neither in an algorithmic nor an arbitrary manner. And we do this when we're paying attention, when we're consulting memory, when we're considering sequence of actions, et cetera, et cetera. And that this is a, a, a very um, central notion, um, and yet it is typically not centrally addressed uh, within cognitive science, psychology, artificial intelligence, although it's now coming to the fore in artificial intelligence and some of the work that I've been able to recently publish. Um, and so for me, and this is where Gibson comes in directly, uh, relevance realization, the, the finding things relevant is not a subjective property of the organism, nor is it an objective feature of the world. It is a, an affordance of cognitive interaction. You can hear the notion from Gibson right there. And what that means is that it is a real relation that is neither objective nor subjective, but what I said called transjective, it's actually more primordial because it makes the intelligible relation between subjectivity and objectivity possible. And that this is taking place at multiple levels uh, within an organism. There's uh, the participatory level, which is a level at which the organism and the environment are being co-shaped at multiple levels the physical level, the biological level, the cultural level, so that affordances open up between them. There's the perspectival level in which human beings are doing salience landscaping, and they're rendering some of those affordances salient to them so that they have a situational presence and awareness. That situational presence and awareness tells them which skills to activate or acquire. That's the procedural knowing. And only after they have that know-how do they actually have the capacity to move propositions around in an inferential manner? And part of the thesis is our culture has been obsessed with the propositional knowing at the expense of the procedural, the perspectival, and the participatory. And that has significantly undermined our capacity for understanding how things like relevance realization and how intelligibility itself is actually generated. So I'm deeply in debt as most of what's called 4E cognitive science are to Gibson. Uh, because of this notion of 
non-propositional, non-computational aspects of cognition that ground out in affordances that uh, co-emerge between the organism and the environment. Um, each one of these kinds of knowing has a kind of memory associated with it. Propositional has semantic, procedural has procedural, perspectival has episodic, participatory has autonoetic, the, the knowledge of this, the memory that we call ourself. Um, and what we've lost is um, because of that propositional tyranny, we've lost how to properly align and organize those together. So we have a very truncated notion of rationality. We've reduced it to computation and we've lost a lot of what ancient philosophy saw as crucial in the cultivation of wisdom. When I take that basic cognitive framework, which is this very dynamic bottom-up, top-down way in which outside and grounding propositionality, which intelligibility is co-created with the world, I come to the conclusion that either that bottom-up, top-down dynamism is has nothing to do with ontological structure in case in which in which case if there is no way in which that fundamental grammar of intelligibility creation touches the structure of ontology then we're doomed to skepticism and solipsism and so i propose that it's more likely as the neoplatonic tradition held that reality is also structured in a similar way things emerging the return to the one, things emanating from the one, um, and that we need an ontology that will comport with the fundamental structures and grammar of our cognition, or as I said, we're locked in skepticism and solipsism. And towards that end, I've, argue, I've argued something convergent with Wolfgang that, um, I, I think it's convergent, I've argued that we need an ontology in which science and the activity of science and the activity of scientists uh, is properly ontologically real or else we, we're in the condition that we're claiming this level at which we're doing science is somehow not real or epiphenomenal, but it's somehow giving us real access to the fundamental deep reality. And that's just a performative contradiction that makes ultimately no sense. We need an ontology in which measurement, argument, debate, etc., all are real and science is properly real so that I, the conclusions derived from scientific practice would also therefore be real. And so I have proposed that we need something like a Neoplatonic ontology in order to address that issue. Could I clarify one thing there, John? Uh, at Please. the end, when you were talking about that we need a science that is properly ontologically real. When you use that word real, are you referring to something similar to what Wolfgang was saying when he said corporeal? I would, no, I, I don't think, from what I've read of Wolfgang, I don't think he equates real with corporeal. I think he equates real with, uh, because there's the tripart cosmos, right? And I take mm -hmm. it that, that all those levels are real. Um, so I, I'm not doing that. I'm not saying that real equals corporeal, but I am saying the reverse. I am saying what he's calling the corporeal has to be real or we fall into all of these performative contradictions. And we also, we lose conformity to reality, right? And, and that, and, and we've tried, we've tried all kinds of representational strategies to try and get back from, you know, 
being locked inside the inner cabinet that Locke had us, right? And getting postcards from the world. And we're trying to find out how we can assemble them so that we know what the world is. That just won't work. We get locked into skepticism and solipsism. What I take real to be is something like an inexhaustible intelligibility so that something is real to us if we can continually find out more about it and in a way that is intelligible and inexhaustible to us. And so I take it that the ultimate source of realness is some kind of inexhaustible source of intelligibility. I find this very interesting, if I may jump in. Very fascinating, in fact, because it seems to me that we are both actually Platonists. Yeah, I am. I'm an avowed Neoplatonist. That's what we are. Yes. And, uh, from what you have just said, it makes me realize all the more vividly that the basic fact about Platonism is that what we call the intelligible or the intellectual or sometimes even the mental is in essence uh, the source of all our, of our ontology. Yes. In other words, being comes from what I call the eternal realm, uh, which is the what in popularly is called the realm of ideas. But uh, in order to comprehend what this really need means one needs to very, very seriously study uh, the ideas of Plato, not through the lenses of, the, of a contemporary philosophy department, no. but going back as far as possible to the earlier writers who I think had a more living understanding of what this is about. I agree, although um, in about the mid-90s, third wave Platonism with Gonzalez and Highland and Kirkland and a bunch of others were arguing for a, the kind of Platonism that uh, are now arguing for the kind of Platonism that I'm arguing for. And they, of course, are pitting themselves against the mainstream academic interpretation of Plato. But on even on scholastic grounds, they are winning round again and again and again and again. And for me, uh, that's very encouraging. Um, and I, I think that, you know, and work by, by, by Berman and others, you know, the platonic objects of science, more and more people are arguing that science is actually better grounded in Platonism than it is in Cartesianism. And I can say specifically for cognitive science, that's exactly the case, uh, right? That, exactly. Right, that, that's coming up. Now, not a lot of people wouldn't quite recognize it because uh, they've been jaundiced by that academic view of Platonism, where Plato is all about these arguments that we abstract from the dialogues and all that sort of stuff. Uh, but more and more people are seeing the deep convergence uh, between 4E cognitive science and uh, a, a Neoplatonic form of intelligence, a Neoplatonic explanation of intelligibility and its fundamental relationship to realness. Well, so John, just for, <clears throat> just for those who aren't familiar, could you go over <clears throat> Very quickly, the 4E cognitive science. Oh, the 4E. sure. 
the point of cognitive science is, is that the, the proposal that cognition is not computation in the head. The proposal is that cognition is inherently embodied, that our embodiment matters. Uh, not This isn't just Cartesian play, but it actually matters. Being a living being matters to us being a rational being. There's a deep continuity between being a cognitive agent and being a biological agent. In that way, it's reminiscent of <clears throat> Aristotle in you know very central ways. Uh, so it's embodied, it's enacted. This is right out of Gibson, right? It's enacted. It's it's not some right. So you are. It's the interaction between you and the environment that actually creates the affordances, the intelligibility, the sense making. It's embedded. We are connected, deeply connected, dynamically coupled to our environment. And so uh, you have to look at cognition much more in a much more biological lens than a physics lens. Uh, so you have to look at the so you don't use physical analogies like billiard balls hitting or things like that. You say, well, look at organisms. They, they're involved in niche construction. They shape the environment and the environment shapes them. And so we have to look at the organism environment dynamic. That's the Im embedded notion. And then extended. Extended is this idea that most of our cognition is actually not done individually, but it's done in, in and through and in concert with other people and various kinds of information processing technology, literacy, et cetera. So for example, we can have this conversation because, because there are myriad of human beings creating these products, running the electric grid, managing, blah, blah, blah. And all of that has making the clothing that I'm wearing, et cetera. All of that has to be constantly in place in order for us to solve uh, uh, most of our problems. And so those are the four E's. I think there are two more E's. Uh, that I'm trying to advocate to get uh, added. Cognition is inherently emotional, not in the sort of romantic sense of hysteria, but in the sense that relevance realization is not cold calculation. Relevance realization is why you care about this information and you don't care about that information, why it grabs your attention, why it motivates your arousal. So that's how cognition is inherently emotional. That lines up with other work by Damasio and others. And then exactive, this is the idea that um, what often happens is the brain, the embodied embedded brain, I'll just say brain for short, ex exacts uh, uh, processes that uh, emerge for one kind of problem into another. Uh, so um, just, just, just to give a quick biological example, the tongue has been exacted for speech, although it, it, most organisms don't use the tongue for speech, etc. Um, we have good reason, for example, that the part of your, the system, not the part in your brain that is handling your sensory motor navigation in the physical world gets exacted into how you move around. Look at the language I'm using, move around the conceptual world or up or down. Um, and, and so we use all of that and uh, are you following by the way what i'm saying um are, are, are i'm almost getting to the end of it and so we use all of that uh, in order to navigate conceptual space and so uh, i would advocate add, uh, adding in those two other e's but this is a very different model from the cartesian model of computation in the head um and so it's deeply indebted to gibson to Marleau-Ponty, uh, to uh, aspects of phenomenology, especially uh, 
sort of post-Heideggerian phenomenology, et cetera. Well, that, that brings me back to one of the things I wanted to say about Gibson. <clears throat> and um, this is primarily so that I can get my thought in there and then I'm just going to let you guys talk about it. I was asking myself, why is it so important what Gibson did? <clears throat> and it seems to me that Gibson grounded seeing in the objectivity of ecological perception. John, what you were talking about when you were saying that, that we are um, embedded, we are coupled within the environment, which imp implies that there is an environment to be coupled within. It is not just inside our heads. Um, Gibson studies showed that we are all seeing the same world because if if my perception of red is different than your perception of red, then then a lot of scientists would say there is actually no red, it's just neurons firing in the brain. But Gibson's work indicated that there actually is a world and that there actually are qualities. So from Gibson's work on seeing, we can recognize that objects actually exist in space. They have color, texture, and <clears throat> The apple is objectively red regardless of who is seeing it. But why is this important? And I got to thinking about C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. Because if we're trained to believe that everything we experience is just inside our heads, colors or fragrances or ideas of what is sublime, um, <clears throat> we no longer inhabit a common world. And this leads to relativism and postmodernism and nihilism and ultimately the control of some men by other men. And so I guess that's the direction I was hoping we could go, is that you could each talk about what you learned from Gibson and how it affects your work and why you think it's important. So I go first? Is that okay? Or do you want to go first, Wolfgang? Well, I, I wanted to say something, John, about uh, what you have just explained a few minutes ago, looking at this from my own, uh, I would say, Platonist point of view, uh, I would say that you have elevated the discussion of the issues that interest you from the corporeal plane where for a long time, the discussion has been centered because uh, we have an ontology which believes in a physical mechanism with nothing much beyond that. So you have elevated it from that level to a level which uh, includes what I call the intermediary or psychic realm in the picture. But my question is, uh, from, from my Platonist point of view, uh, the third plane that enters the picture and in fact in a primary way, and that is, you can call it by various names, I, I like to call it the eternal realm, because it is a realm which transcends the domain of time. There's no time in, in, in that eternal realm, and this is really where things originate, and this is really the realm from which things get their reality, or more precisely, their being. Yes. So my question is, 
assuming that I have not misinterpreted you, I, I hope I have not. Uh, my question then is, uh, do you acknowledge this difference between what I call the intermediary or psychic realm and the eternal? And does that enter into your considerations? Very much so. So I, I was answering the other question, uh, wearing my hat as sort of a representative of a lot of cognitive science, for e-cognitive science. Now I can answer on my own behalf, which is I very much, I mean, uh, I very much think there is something corresponds, uh, you'll understand my hesitancy in a second, to what Plotinus called the one. Um, and that um, the source of intelligibility is not itself intelligible. Uh, the source of being is not itself any kind of being. And in that sense, there is a it is a no-thingness, and therefore it is not properly understood under the categories of time and space. One of the difficulties in our culture is we've lost the ability to discern that superlative no-thingness with the nothingness that is at the bottom of nihilism. And, and part of our lack of wisdom is we can no, we no longer have the tools by which we can adequately distinguish between those. And I think that's one of the driving forces, uh, sort of the ontological forces of nihilism in our culture. But I very much acknowledge uh, that. Uh, and for me, um, that is not only something I acknowledge uh, uh, like you do, out of sort of a reflection on science and intelligibility. It's also something that I it has been disclosed to me in three decades of meditative and contemplative practice. And so for me, the two are deeply resonant and mutually supportive. Um, so that is something that is actually, uh, actually in which I have, I place a large degree of epistemic confidence, uh, very much. Um, did that, was that an adequate answer, uh, Wolfgang? Or to... well, yes, it's. I find I find it extremely interesting, and I hope I'm not misunderstanding you. But uh, is it? Would it be correct to paraphrase uh, your position as acknowledging what I call the three? levels, sure. the eternal, the psychic or intermediary, and then the yeah. corporeal, as, uh, as uh, the sphere that you, in concert with James Gibson, are, so to speak, rediscovering in your own sphere of interest. Well, well I mean, I was privileged to take a course, an entire course on the ecological approach to visual perception with one of Gibson's primary protégés, John Kennedy. Um, and so I learned this very deeply. Now, the consequences of that are still rumbling through me, and that was a while, quite a while ago. Uh, but for me, and this is where I would maybe push back a little bit on how Mary characterized what Gibson did. Um, uh, for me, what, what has eventually crystallized is that Gibson undermined in a very powerful way nominalism, the idea that reality is ultimately based on individual spatial-temporal objects and that all relations between them are just mind-dependent projection. And you know, mm -hmm. and you can have the Kantian version. And Gibson basically undermines that. He says, no, no, 
There are real affordances are real relations. They're not in the object. They're not in the subject. That's why I hesitate to call it objective. I don't, I don't know if that's quite the right word because he's trying to say, no, no, because, because affordances aren't object centered. And in that sense, they aren't objective. They, that, they, to my mind, they bind the subject and the object together and they undermine nominalism and they say there are real relations. Once you get the idea of real relations, you are starting to move towards the idos, the platonic idos. The, I, I don't want to use the word form because whenever people hear that, they think shape and that's not what I'm talking about, right? And so for me, but I have to tell you that that's not something, I mean, I, I did well in John's course and John and I uh, went on and published work together, but this has been percolating through me and, and, it, and, it, and it drew me into 4E Cogsci, but that's how it came to fruition for me. It was not so much that it put me into the vertical ascent because I had an independent pathway in which I was invested. And I mean, spiritually practices in the Socratic Neoplatonic pathway. But what it did for me Right. So it wasn't so much that vertical. It was the undermining of nominalism and that opened things up for me. And it opened up the possibility that I could integrate the, the phenomenological and, and, and sapiential transformations I saw in me and other people with a, a proposal about, you know, uh, uh, an ontology that explained intelligibility and the actual reality of science. That's how Gibson worked for me. Sorry, that was long, but I was I was trying to answer that really good question. So for me, I don't I typically don't call affordances objective because the word objective to me is is a holdover of the very nominalist position that says what reality is is objects. Um, it's so, very good. I like what you say. A very yeah. very good point. Yeah, and. The um, that undermining of nominalism, right? Of you called propositional tyranny earlier. Yes. That's so key, right? Because that is it opens the door to a new ontology. Yes. In the beginning, you talked about an ontology that's consistent with science, right? And we've also like Wolfgang has introduced the word being, and being is actually what science denies. Yes. So when we get to kind of what's real and what's not real, is science dealing with the real? Science is not entirely dealing with the real because science has, um, this is a term from Eric Vogelin, decapitated being, right? Um, by focusing on quantity, on extension, it has um, really denied being and it never addresses being at all. And then presumes that it can go back and, you know, eventually kind of recapture being from the ground up with all of its uh, observations. That's because science has misunderstood itself as yeah. what can be derived, what can be computed from, from its findings and its main claims and not paid attention to what is being presupposed and needs to be contemplated it, right. We need to science isn't just what's derivable from our physics. It's what is presupposed, I would argue, by our physics in a deep and profound way. And so like the, 
again, but for me, it's the nominalism and the computationalism that's, and Wolfgang, you do this in your book. We're only looking down. We're only looking down. We're only looking down. And right. But the ancients don't do that. Right. They, they say, what must the world be like such that it's intelligible? And they're willing to look up and down at the same time. And for me, that's why the, it continues to be an inspiration for me. I like Richard, I, I, I'm saying that too. I'm, I, I hope that coheres with yeah. what you said. And my one sentence summary of Wolfgang's work is the measurer cannot be measured. <laughs> well, ultimately, that has to be the case. It ultimately has to be the if to be and to be understood is to one that which ones right can't be grasped by anything that has any di any difference or distinction within it. This is Plotinus's famous argument. Yeah. Uh, and I, I take it that that's ultimately the case. If mm -hmm. we claimed to measure the one, it can't possibly be the one. Um, and then the last thing I just wanted to get in is Karen's comment about the control of some men by other men, right? Which is where we've gotten to with science and with nominalism, right? There is this uh, situation now culturally where as, you know, there is no reality. Certain people are able to define the truth and define reality. And that ultimately leads to nobody really having control over the truth, right? And now we've kind of returned to this, um, seems to me, kind of the very situation that science set out to overcome, which was other people telling you what the truth was, right? <laughs> and now scientists are trying to tell us what the truth is, um, even though they say there's no truth. The vertical dimension cannot be excluded from the project of working out intelligibility. And if we <laughs> exclude it from the foreground, it is going to come back in yes. you know, neurotic ways, right, uh, from the background. Absolutely. And, uh, I, 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 uh, yeah, I think there's a deep connection between what I talk about, the meaning crisis, and the loss of a proper understanding uh, of the vertical and the horizontal and the relationship between them. I talk, again, I was, uh, again, not to take any, you have provenance, you published on this before I did, but I've been talking in the work I do on dialectic into dialogos about the vertical dimensions of ratio, the horizontal, when we're dialoguing with each other, and that what we want is to properly integrate and coordinate them together. Would you agree, John, that uh, what Gibson finally did is he... Uh, has, in principle, saved our generation from Cartesianism. He has broken that bifurcationist axiom, which has bedeviled our civilization since the 17th century. I, I mean, I would put him in with a bunch of other people, uh, which are people that are, you know, important in for e-cognitive science. Uh, I think Marlo Ponti does tremendous work on trying to overcome the bifurcation. Um, I think Whitehead, he even uses the term, is doing yes. a, lot, a lot to try and overcome the, the bifurcation. So I think there's, there's there's been a whole group of people that um, in different domains, and what's happening now is they're all being sort of networked together by this emerging community. Let me ask you, John, um, how much is James Gibson recognized, say, in the contemporary academic community? Hugely, hugely. The, the, many people will, will say 
well, within cognitive science, not so much in psychology, but in cognitive science, especially 4E cognitive science, he's a titan. He, ha he has a status like Piaget has for developmental psychology, because many people argue that the notion of affordances, the notion of uh, that, that perception is sensory motor inaction, are core, are core things we have to get if we're going to understand cognition. But isn't it still true that in the academic world and specifically in this field of cognitive psychology, the so-called visual image theory of perception is still the standard if you... Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. And so uh, uh, please allow me the distinct... I teach in both, so I'm allowed to talk about both, right? Good. Please allow me though the distinction between cognitive science and cognitive psychology. I agree that that is still the prominent thing in cognitive psychology. It, and and the whole representationalist framework, and, and one of the one of the things I do is I try to use four e cognitive science that has an ongoing critique of the representationalist and the Cartesian framework, and I try to and I I've been hired to do that, so I'm not doing anything to seem duplicitous uh, uh, to bring that into the courses I teach on cognitive psychology, and I mean I've had long-standing success with my students and they go on to excellent graduate programs and if, if it's not bragging i'm now getting a lot of success in getting stuff published in, in important journals uh, but to your point for a long time i was looked at like what's he doing what's he <laughs> kind of thing um so yeah but i think i have good reason to believe that i'm participating in a real change of that computationalist, representationalist straitjacket. Would it be true to say that even now, a lot of people are getting degrees in cognitive psychology and they think that when I look out and see the external world, what I'm actually seeing has to do with neurons firing in the brain. Isn't, isn't that view still more or less the standard? They would, that is still the standard view, although I would point out that they are involved in the performative contradiction that I was talking about earlier, because they don't think the charts they're reading and the computer screen that is giving them the data they're using in their experiments is just neuronal firing. They think it's somehow real and capturing something about some aspect of the world that's real. Uh, and of course, I try to constantly, well, not constantly, uh, frequently uh, point that out, uh, that we're involved in a, 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 a tremendous amount of incoherence in how this picture, I, I've been arguing that since my thesis in 97. So I can say I've been trying to ch challenge that representational straitjacket for quite some time now. But do most people do, still get it, uh, still get their degrees? Well, within that framework, yes, yes. But that, I, what I can say is there are many, many people who are getting PhDs in cognitive science who are challenging that framework. I can also say that. I think it would be wonderful, John, if you could lecture the physics community <laughs> because... Uh, they are still basing their entire worldview uh, on the premise that uh, 
the world we perceive is a uh, an an ens cogitans, a thing of yeah. the mind. Yes. Um, what this enormous breakthrough that Gibson has in principle achieved uh, has still not penetrated into the physics world. I can tell you that with complete I, I, assurance. I, I find that very odd because, you know, uh, Neoplatonism was playing a huge role in the scientific revolution. And, you know, John Spencer and others have pointed out it, 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 it also played a, a huge role in the scientific revolution of the early 20th century. Um, and he documents this quite well at times. And so it's odd that that history keeps getting forgotten uh, uh, when, when physicists, I'm sorry, like they, they look, they are willing to do they, without batting an eye, you know, speculative ontology uh, and propose entities that cannot possibly be empirically validated, multiverses and, you know, all kinds of electrons moving backwards through time. How would we possibly test that? Things like, and yet, and yet when you say, well, could you conceive of there being, you know, uh, real patterns uh, that are real sort of constraints on possibility that are as important as the causal relationship between events, they go, no, oh, no, no. And I, I, I find that perplexing. I don't know, like, and I'm not trying to besmirch anybody's character. I, I, I find it perplexing because it's like, well, you stopped being sort of Newtonian physicists a long time ago. You do metaphysics, even if you won't call it that. And why not do it well and explicitly and connected to a good history then just do it individually and implicitly. I find that I find that perplexing. I, I'd add beyond perplexing, problematic and culturally um, devastating. I, I, mean, I have uh, in my I, I have in my writings uh, many times uh, drawn attention to the fact what I believe is a fact. Namely, that most physicists, getting back to the physicists for a moment, most physicists uh, do not realize that they are making a metaphysical or ontological assumption in the form of what Whitehead calls bifurcation. Yes. They think it's, this is simply the way it is. It's as obvious as 2 plus 2 equals 4. There's, and in fact, if you ever try to explain to a physicist what Whitehead calls bifurcation and explain to him that this idea entered the picture in the 17th century and it has changed our world, you'll find that he won't know what you're talking about. I speak from experience. So what's it, and I believe you, by the way. So what I'm now saying is not a challenge. Um, so I go through that history and awakening from the meaning crisis in detail. And what's been interesting to me is the number of PhD students in physics that have appreciated that argument and have commented and let me know about that which gives me some hope uh, that it's possible that it is possible perhaps we people need to confront this material 
earlier on, on in their graduate career uh, before maybe they're ensconced or something. But I, I can say that back to you, Wolfgang, that has happened and it's happened multiple times that when I, you know, when I go through and I say, well, look what happens, you get anomalism and then you get, you know, all that you get, what happens, you get Descartes and the bifurcation and it looks, and I try to say, look at how this, this isn't natural. This came at a particular historical point for historical reasons. Um, and, and, and here's all the problems with it, et cetera. And like I said, I, I get a lot of these students graduate students in physics who say, well, I really appreciated this. Thank you for doing that. Um, so uh, what do you say, John is very, very encouraging. And, and, and in a way I agree with you to the extent that I have knowledgeable in this field, because I do believe that uh, this age in which we are still confined uh, in the large scale of things, namely the the rationalism that came into being at the, during the 17th century and has given birth to modern science as we know it, which is based upon bifurcation. Yes, I believe that this is coming to an end, and. Uh, yes. People like yourself, John, are, are making it happen. In other words, uh, you, what you're saying belongs much more to the future than to the past. Well, but... I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm getting towards the end of my academic career, so I hope, I hope that's true. Um, yeah, I, 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 I think that's, I think, I hope that's right. Uh, uh, that's where I'm placing my epistemic bets. Um, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting how figures that I mean, I I I am uh, I'm a deep fan of Spinoza because Spinoza saw. I mean, he knew Descartes worked better than most, and yet he saw the bifurcation and he tries to address it and he tries to stitch it back into the project of blessedness and wisdom. That's why the work is called the Ethics, not the Physics. Um, and he and he has this scientia intuitiva which is this mystical, you see the whole in the parts and the parts in all the whole. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and what's interesting is Spinoza is going through a revival right now. And I don't think that's coincidence. And what's particularly interesting is I, was, I had the great pleasure to talk to Claire Carlyle, who wrote one of the best books ever I've ever read on Spinoza. And nobody had ever written a book with this title, Spinoza's Religion. And she talks about how you, you can really, and it's a beautifully written book. You have to understand Spinoza as belonging to the entire tradition of participation in God and that how he's trying to get this back into the Cartesian framework before it strangles off that tradition. And, and I think it's a beautiful book. But I, she couldn't, uh, not, not, and this is not besmirching her excellent talent. She's a gifted writer. But I don't think she she could have got that book published twelve years ago. I, I don't think it would have been published. The fact that you have all these books published on Spinoza, and I read many of them, and not think about it, all that time, and nobody writes a book Spinoza's religion. Right? That's just so telling. In fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, Spinoza has been somewhat ignored. Yes. The last one hundred years. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Uh, or uh, he's been ignored, and, and um, 
it, more than ignored, he's he's been ignored and condemned um, uh, in various ways. Um, but now uh, that's coming back to the coming back to the fore, and um, I'm encouraged by I'm encouraged by things like that. Just, so you too, you too, John. You feel that we are approaching a turning point in our culture. We're at the end of a of an era. What Rene Guénon termed the reign of quantity. So this reign of quantity is coming to an end. I I think we are at a kairos. I think the meaning crisis, and there's lots of people. Uh, you know, writing convergent with this uh, uh, has exhausted a particular that the framework we've been in, and we are at a kairos. And I'm using this the way Paul Tillich uses it, right? We we are at a, a point of criticality in which a, a major turning can occur, and that, of course, has tremendous negative potential. But when a system is critical in this fashion, when it's losing its structure. It's also possible for individuals to make a difference they can't otherwise make when the social structure is very stable. So we have this chirotic opportunity and I am deeply invested in it. So in addition to my academic hat, I wear two other hats that I didn't even conceive I would be wearing. One is I try to help people develop ecologies of practices for bringing about fundamental transformation. And then I'm also doing work trying to get all these emerging communities it, uh, right. One of them is this little corner of the Internet and others are Rafe Kelly's, you know, and, and I'm trying to get these communities into a community of communities. I was just down in Vermont uh, at uh, the Mona uh, the Maple Monastic Academy trying to get that to happen, to try and build a viable subculture. So, yes, I I, I, I am deeply invested even beyond an ac academic dimensions in trying to clarify and direct the Kairos as best as possible. Well, I wish you the best of luck, John. Nothing is more important than that. <laughs> well, I have a lot of good friends and colleagues. There's Mary and, you know, and, and John. Uh, John, John, <laughs> John as, as much as I appreciate the, the, uh, the nomination, I'm Karen, not Mary. <laughs> oh, Karen. I'm sorry, Karen. Sorry. Yes. So, um, since Wolfgang has asked you a lot of questions, John, I wonder if you have a question you might like to ask Wolfgang from your reading of his book. Can, can I just say one thing before? Sure. Just to put a pin in something that I really want to put a pin in and celebrate, which is the idea this, that Gibson has, um, is the death of nominalism and representationalism. That is such a liberating event. It's it's uh, epochal, right? Yeah. We've been trapped in this nominalism and representationalism and rationalism for hundreds of years. I think it's led to the crisis, the cultural crisis that we're in, the meaning crisis that we're in. So to recognize that um, is so is such a big deal that um, uh, I just I thank you both for helping to make that so clear. And I think it is it's such a liberating thing for so many people and for our culture that uh, I just wanted to really call attention to it. Well, thank you. I agree with that completely. Yeah. Karen, I wanted to apologize. 
That's okay, John. Well, you know what's going through my mind as I see you. I'm thinking of Mary. And yeah, so I know. That's that's why it came out. Um, but uh, I didn't... And you you had many conversations with Mary. So. Um... And who is Mary? Okay, so Mary Cohen uh, was a member of our little corner of the internet, and she did many wonderful um, conversations with John and with others, and she had her own YouTube channel. She was a brilliant thinker, and she passed away recently. We lost her. So we were watching uh, a YouTube with you and Mary recently, I guess, with John and Mary and a young man. J.P. Marceau. J.P. Marceau, yeah. Do I have any questions for Wolfgang? Is that what you're asking me? Yes, Karen? based on your reading of his book. You're yeah. Reading, you're reading Vertical Ascent? Well, yeah. That's the okay. one that called out to me because okay. I'm all about an Anagage, right? And I talk about Anagage a lot, and that's the Vertical Ascent. It's the ascent out of the cave, but also the return, right? Uh, you, right? And D.C. Schindler in Plato's Critique of Impure Reason makes a very good argument for that. Um, I guess what I would ask... Wolfgang is, uh, so for me, and this is, you know, this is, knowledge is only a, compo a component of virtue and wisdom. And so for me, I've been doing both scientific work, and I, I published on it, but also experimental participation where, you know, I've been teaching things to people and practicing things. Um, I'm wondering what Wolfgang thinks about the kind of practices that human beings should be engaging in, in order to facilitate. Um, and I think I'm going to use this word, you know, really strongly, the proper contemplation of the vertical ascent, right? And so uh, theorizing is, to my mind, not ultimate, it's necessary. Uh, but there are other things that people need to be doing if this is going to be deeply and transformatively realized and not just taken into a conceptual memory bank. Do you know what I mean, Wolfgang? And, and so what- no, That's, a, that's yeah. a very vital question. And uh, I, I must tell you, John, I am by nature and perhaps by education too, by background. By education, I don't mean anything connected with the universities. That's not where you get education. So education, in my sense, has also predisposed me towards a very um, traditionalist understanding of these things. Uh, I feel that wisdom is not something we or anyone can invent. It has been given to mankind ages ago. And in a certain sense, when it comes to the things that are really important, I would say that I see things in the very opposite way of the modern person who gets his wisdom from the universities, in the sense that I regard the ancient schools uh, as uh, far more, far, far deeper and, and more normative than the later ones. For example, uh, I don't think that, uh, that you can point to uh, philosophies uh, of the modern era as uh, remotely on the same, of the same caliber or level or depth perception as what you find, say, in Platonism when it is uh, properly understood 
And incidentally, let me mention in this connection that I regard it as utterly impossible for a contemporary man to simply uh, get by the dialogues of Plato, read them and understand what yeah, is yeah. going on. That's yeah, 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 I agree with that. Impossible. I agree with that very deeply, very deeply. And in fact, I'm lucky. I, in my young years, I managed to acquire the complete works of Plato translated by Thomas Taylor. Ah. And I have his 1804 edition, of the <laughs> complete works. Uh, in fact, I was working on something this morning. I don't know if I can display that. Do you see anything on your... You're, you're holding the... Your hand is in there, but it flipped over. Yeah, the, there's open a black... up the open it up. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I wanted to show you this page. Yes. Yes, the works of Plato. Yes. That's the 1804 edition of Plato's of Plato's works. And the valuable thing is the commentary of this 18th century English Platonist called Thomas Taylor, yes. who was ignored during his lifetime. He made a living as a bank clerk, but he translated not only Plato, but the Neoplatonists. Mm -hmm. And most importantly, his commentaries uh, open up an, an entirely new way of understanding these ancient books. Mm -hmm. So, um, I'm now turning to Thomas Taylor's interpretation of the Timaeus to learn a little bit about how the ancients really con conceived of this universe. And incidentally, I'm just writing a paper on that. Uh, one of the things that I find fascinating is that the Timaeus, if you really understand it, correctly, and as I'm sure Thomas Taylor does, you find that the Timaeus actually uh, explains the ontological basis for what we know as the Ptolemaic uh, astronomy. Mm -hmm. This division, the tripartite division of the integral cosmos repeats itself, so to speak, or is present iconically, you could also say, on the corporeal level itself. So in other words, the universe that we see through our telescopes um, turns out, according to the Timaeus, to be in truth Ptolemaic, which means that it breaks into a sidereal sphere, so-called fixed stars, Yes. The Earth is at the center. That's another that could occupy us for a whole uh, lecture in its own right. And then between the two, between the stellar realm and the uh, terrestrial, there is an annular region uh, known as the planetary. And this is not uh, 
the invention of Ptolemus uh, or anyone, in fact, but it is uh, it is an ancient truth which the Pythagoreans and Platonists were still, uh, so to speak, comprehending. They did not invent that either, they expressed it. And I believe that uh, this tripartition is simply a fact. It's not anybody's theory, it's simply a fact. And incidentally, just to close that subject, if you believe that, you've got your work cut out for you because it means that you need to write many books to explain to the contemporary mind how, notwithstanding what we call the facts of astronomy and, and all that, that ancient model, if you will, is still uh, definitive. Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for that, Wolfgang. We seem to have lost John momentarily. I'm not sure if... Um... If he just lost con connectivity and will maybe be back in a moment, but but while we're waiting whether to see whether John is able to come back, I wanted to <clears throat> just read something from your one of your books, Wolfgang, that I thought was so meaningful, and I think it connects up to what you've just been saying. The things of nature point beyond themselves. Though they be corporeal, they speak of incorporeal realms. They are symbols. There's an analogic correspondence between the different planes. And then you go on to say that a radical change has taken place in man's perception of himself. According to ancient belief, there is a symbolic correspondence between the cosmos in its entirety and man, the theomorphic creature who recapitulates the macrocosm within himself. No doubt the reason for this centrality is... <clears throat> that man, having been made in the image of God, carries within himself the center from which all things have sprung. And that too is why he can understand the world, why the cosmos is intelligible to the human intellect. He is able to know the universe because, in a way, it pre-exists in him. I just thought that was a wonderful way of putting it, Wolfgang. And I think that's from Cosmos and Transcendence. But <clears throat> well, it, it, it merely uh, enunciates uh, a truth which, say, in Plato's day, was what every student in his academy would learn. Um, this, this was known, it was accepted as true, and it, it is true and will always be true, but the fact of the matter is that in modern times this has been forgotten and it's completely at odds with the contemporary way of, lo of looking at the cosmos and looking at man. Uh, what you learn, what you imbibe, uh, partly by osmosis, if you enter into a university. So what nowadays only a few oddballs, if you will, understand is something that was regarded as 
the educated, cultured Weltanschauung in ancient times. Well, so if I could just draw you back for a moment now that John is back, you know, John's original question there was, what practices might you recommend for people to be able to get back to this understanding? <clears throat> and you pointed to the reading that you were doing in Plato. Is, is reading one of those things that you recommend? Are there other practices? Are there meditative practices or prayer or other traditions that you recommend? Well, let me say, first of all, that reading is a double-edged sword because it can take you to heaven and it can also take you in the other direction. It depends on who and what, whom and what you read. Uh, I personally have, as you have no doubt observed, a great preference for ancient, ancient reading. I feel that the ancients actually were wiser than we by long shot. And as it turns out, since the uh, Copernican revolution, uh, we in the West, in the Western world have been very much misled. So uh, reading nowadays is a very dangerous thing. Uh, if you happen to read the most popular books, uh, recommended in our universities, it is apt to lead you astray. So I think John agrees with me that some of the most valuable books to read and to use in our formation are the, the ancient ones. Wolfgang, if I may invite you to speak a little bit about your Catholicism and how you understand Catholicism and kind of the esoteric versus exoteric aspects of Catholicism. Well, as part of an address to John's question about yeah, how I, do I, we grow in alignment or wisdom with these, with this well, ontology. Let me, answer as briefly as possible by just starting at the beginning. And in the early part of my life, and in fact, I would say the first half, I was about 40 years old or so when I began to shift, but in the early part of my life, I was fascinated with the Vedic tradition. And I made many, many trips to India when I was very young in order to see at first hand how the best representatives of the Vedic culture practice their religion. And so at one point I spent seven months living amongst uh, sadhus in remote places just to communicate with them as best I can and observe their life and uh, try to form some idea as to what they have achieved. And uh, I can tell you that this has revolutionized my life because I realized that these advanced sadhus who actually had devoted their life to that practice were actually able to enter ontological planes that we in the West don't even know exist. And what I, in my later writings, referred to as 
the three levels, the corporeal, the intermediary, and the epiternal, uh, these are levels that the, the most advanced of the uh, yogis that I met uh, actually on a daily basis were able to enter. And I have no doubt about that. And in fact, there are experiences which uh, very much testify to the truth of that. So this is, so in the first part of my life, I was very much interested in pursuing uh, these higher matters from a Vedic point of view. And then later in life, uh, I think thanks in large measure to a wonderful Catholic lady whom I married, thanks to her influence, I returned, so to speak, to the religion of my childhood. I was baptized as a child in the Catholic religion. I returned to that, but I would say from a uh, somewhat new point of vantage. And in fact, I have recently published a book in which I talk about, uh, well, the title of the book will tell you what it is about. It is entitled Vedanta in Light of Christian Wisdom. So uh, I, uh, here at the end of my life, I look upon the Vedic religion in light of Christianity. So uh, this book, so to speak, uh, explains my views relating to religion. But on a personal level, I have in my latter years returned to the religion of my childhood with the difference that now I see it with different eyes and I embrace it with all my being, which I could not do as a child. So these intermediary years have helped me to be a Catholic, not nominally, but fully, as fully as I am able to, to be. Thank you for that, Wolfgang. I, I really appreciate you opening yourself up on that. And thank you for asking that question too, Richard. <laughs> and uh, if I, well, um, I'd like to have John have a chance to catch up <laughs> and see if you missed anything there, but uh, I did have a follow-on question too. Last, last 10 minutes or so, this my, my internet keeps dropping here. I, I, I heard the reference to Catholicism and then everything froze and my signal dropped. Um, so, so I did Wolfgang just wrote a new, a wonderful new book, uh, two books in the last year, I think, but one of them is um, Vedanta in Light of Christian Wisdom. Oh, I'd like to read that. It's a wonderful <laughs> book. And um, Wolfgang was speaking of how he traveled in uh, India and met many sadhus as a young man. Uh, after <laughs> sitting in, uh, you know, academic philosophy classes and realizing that this was not the philosophy he was looking for, right? And uh, really wonderful little book. But um, but in it, and, uh, and Wolfgang, I'd invite you to talk about this too. You make a connection between Vedanta and Christianity through Meister Eckhart uh, around this idea of chitta vritti niroda. 
right? The removal of mental modifications. How do we um, eliminate the things that are keeping us from ultimately um, connecting with these other realms, which are part of our being, right? Like the intermediary, we do have a connection to the intermediary realm. We have a connection to the eternal realm. Just because science has denied that they exist and pretended that all we should, you know, only look at the nominal guys, don't look over here, just keep looking over there, right? And by the way, we'll tell you what nominal, you know, what the names are. <laughs> so meanwhile, um, that idea of Chitta Vritti Naroda in terms of, of the core practice, the core, the essence of the practice that ultimately helps somebody to not just be captured by the nominal and the representational or just the cultural paradigm, Weltanschauung, whatever it may be, um, that that's the, that's the key process. Well, we have similar backgrounds. Um, I went into academic philosophy uh, and encountered the figure of Plato and wanted to take up a Socratic way of life. And that academic philosophy, the topic of wisdom uh, fell off the table. I went on, of course, because I valued the set of skills it was giving me. But I turned to outside of the academy and went to a place where I started learning Vipassana meditation, meta contemplation and Tai Chi Chuan. And I did that for and continue to do that um, and in that way. I'm sort of proto Zen. And it was only through the hat that I came back and especially by the help of Pierre Hadot discovered the Western wisdom tradition within ancient philosophy, especially Neoplatonism and figures like Eckhart. And of course, uh, in the Kyoto school, you have people like T.T. Uh, Suzuki comparing Eckhart. Eckhart's the same eye by which I see God is the eye by which God sees me to prajna that's realized within the Zen tradition. Uh, so in, in, in and again, um, we're very convergent uh, in that way, Wolfgang. I also went out uh, came back in and rediscovered um, the whole Neoplatonic heritage, and that ha it had, and uh, it was, you know, it was actually, I, I was actually Buddhist that introduced me to this idea, uh, right? And and it was I, and then I realized that there was a wisdom tradition, and it, you know, coming from Socrates and flowing out, and that's how I got uh, into it. So uh, yes, uh, taking up these practices have has been integral. I I, I go so far as to say. Um, like if you want to understand the Tao Te Chen, you better be doing some Tai Chi Chuan uh, because you really won't understand it if you're not practicing uh, the Tai Chi Chuan. This is very fascinating. I'm happy to hear that, John. I should perhaps add that in this book I mentioned, Vedanta and Light of Christian Wisdom, one of the things that I do, and I think it's one of the main uh, contributions of the book, is I, uh, I argue against a view which in our time has become practically universal amongst the intelligentsia. Uh, this view is sometimes associated with the term perennialism. Sure. And yeah. more concretely, it is associated with Friedhof Schuon's idea of the so-called transcendent unity of religions. Yeah. So Shuan wrote a very influential book, uh, which claims to prove that uh, all the different religions are really so many variants 
of what is basically Vedanta, and, and if you will, lesser degrees of it. And uh, this view I have found is nowadays um, held worldwide by the, so to speak, higher levels or highest levels perhaps of the educated uh, scholars. And I myself was under the influence of this view for a certain period of time, but eventually I not only abandoned it, but I came to regard it as a very dreadful view, which as a Christian, uh, it behooves me to, to contradict. It is what could rightfully in Christian language be referred to as a heresy, and perhaps as the major heresy of our day. What is that? Well, it is essentially a matter of looking at the world through Vedantic eyes, through the eyes of Advaita Vedanta, regarding Advaita Vedanta as the non plus ultra and judging all religions, including Christianity, by that measure. And I think this is a complete, complete mistake. And in fact, I regard this little book of mine as a rigorous refutation of that view. Mm -hmm. I, I really think it is a refutation. It's not just that I express my opinion. I'm a mathematician. I believe that there is truth and falsity, and there is a QED, which means something. So I, I do think that I have set the record straight. The co my conclusion is that Christianity in particular is incomprehensible from a Vedantic point of view. If you look at the world through Vedantic eyes, you'll see all sorts of things, but you will not see an iota of Christianity. And as a matter of fact, there was no possibility even of thinking in these terms. At the time, the Vedic tradition uh, was initiated. The Vedic tradition is much, much older than the entire Judeo-Christian tradition. And even such basic uh, concepts of the Judeo-Christian tradition, like for example, sin, is not present in the Vedic tradition. You can go through all the Vedic books from A to Z. You will not find the idea of sin. You will not, in fact, find the idea of the fall. The fall of Adam, which is, of course, a basic uh, truth in the Judeo-Christian tradition, is nowhere to be found in the Vedic tradition. The Vedic tradition does acknowledge that our human nature as it empirically exists is, uh, is in a way mutilated, as it says in one of the Vedic books in an Upanishad, God has done us an injury by causing our eyes to look outwards and not to, to look inwards where we see the truth. Something like that, that's not an exact uh, translation. The point is, however, that 
the Judeo-Christian, if you will, explanation of this fact, which is the fall of Adam, these things incidentally can only be spoken of in mystical terms. There's no scientific way of approaching these matters at all. It's too deep for that. So the Judeo-Christian idea of the fall, which is of course basic to not only Judaism, but Christianity, uh, is nowhere present in the Vedic in the Vedic tradition. So the point I make in my book is that you, can, you cannot grasp Christianity through Vedantic eyes, neither can you grasp Vedanta through Christian eyes unless you go to the most esoteric expression of it, which I personally locate in Meister Eckhart. Mm-hmm. And in fact, at the center of my book, there's an exegesis, which I think is to be found only in Meister Eckhart, which essentially enables you to understand that you can view Christianity in it in part as a yoga, that there is a commonality between the Hindu yoga which is chitta vritti niroda in Sanskrit, this is Patanjali's definition, there is a a concordance between yoga as understood in Vedic terms and the central practice of Christianity. And you will find this only in Meister Eckhart. And so based upon that remarkable exegesis of Meister Eckhart, I actually argue that the the wisdom of Christianity is wider than the wisdom of Vedanta. It includes Vedanta, but goes beyond. So this is the gist of what I've done. I want to read the book. Um, I I reject both... uh sort of Huxley and perennialism. I, 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 I think there are two main camps in the academic world. There's perennialism and there's a kind of constructivist social relativism, uh, which says the religions are completely unique and incommensurable and uninterpretable uh, to each other. And I hear you challenging both of those and I challenge both of them um, as well. Um, and I think what you said also points to the fact that we have to look often, and Eckhart, of course, is recommending this, outside of the propositional within various positions to see points where they may actually contact. One thing that's interesting for me is what you just did, I take as a convergent piece of evidence for my proposal that Neoplatonism, because Eckhart is a Neoplatonist through and through, um, again, can be this kind of intellectual silk road, a common courtyard where different religions can come and talk to each other, not to convert each other, but to do the kind of thing you're doing in your book. And uh, I propose that as an alternative to both perennialism and to relativism as an approach for going forward right now. So again, sounds like in some important ways, our work is convergent. What's the name of the book? I'm very happy to hear that, John. I'm very happy to hear that. We seem to have very uh, compatible views. 
Right. So I didn't catch the name of the book because it was part of what got garbled. What's the name of this book? Um, Vedanta in Light of Christian oh, yeah, Right, right, right. I'm going to order that. Uh, um, unfortunately, I have to go. I have another meeting I have to come to. Uh, but And we lost some time because the internet signal dropped. I apologize. I've actually stayed an extra 15 minutes beyond what I had planned to try and make up for that because I wanted to hear that the answer to that question, which was the most important question I wanted to ask Wolfgang. I'm, right, I'm happy. I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you the the uh, the MP4 so that you can listen to the end on your own. <clears throat> right, and you know uh, maybe I can upload it also on my channel as well. I'll, I want you to have priority on your channel, of course. But after a while, if you, you can tell me, okay, now you can release it on your channel if you want, John, and I'll, I'll do that. That'd um, be great. Yeah, well, thank I'd you so much, much like... for staying the extra fifteen minutes. This last fifteen minutes has been just wonderful. So. Well, it's been fantastic. And um, I mean, and I, I'm not imposing uh, when I say this, but if we, if we would like to do this again at some point, um, I, I'd be very much happy to do so. I've enjoyed this very much. And I'm, like I said, I'm enjoying your book. I find it deeply, uh, when I find people that, that I have not known about and have not known about me, and then there's deep convergence, that, that encourages me that what I, the work I've been doing has plausibility. Uh, and so um, I want to thank you, Wolfgang, uh, uh, for your work. And again, the many points of convergence. Uh, it, it, it's been a great pleasure meeting you. It has been a very great pleasure for me. All the best to you, John. All you too. Thank and you. Thank you, Karen, and thank you, uh, Richard. But thank I you. do have to jump. So thank okay. you very Thank, thank you all very much. And Hi, I'll have all this information in the definitions and the descriptions for people. So thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Karen. Uh -huh. Bye. Bye-bye. I know.